0: To me, it has actually always been important that I am also a mom. There's always something I knew I wanted to have kids. I said, all right, I want to get my graduate degree and I want to be successful in science, but I also want to be a good mom. To me, those things are not mutually exclusive. You can be both a good scientist and a good mom.
1: Hello and welcome to We Persist, a podcast that shares the stories of incredible people from all different backgrounds in the earth, ocean, and environmental sciences. Today we are speaking with Dr. Ellen Enderlin, an assistant professor at Boise State University and my former master's advisor at the University of Maine, where she was a research assistant professor. She broadly studies contemporary glacier dynamics in Greenland and the Antarctic. Let's just start off by, can you tell us a bit about yourself?
0: So, I'm a glaciologist. I sort of got interested in my field through growing up in the Lehigh Valley, which is in eastern Pennsylvania. And I grew up in a pretty rural area, which was about five miles from the Appalachian Trail. And so it was a pretty rural area by the mountains, although they're east coast mountains, so they're very small. And when I was there, I really was always outside playing that sort of translated into just having an interest in sciences and particularly natural sciences as well. So when I was in, I think it was sixth grade, I did a science fair project where it was a really boring topic to me. It was taking rain measurements outside of my house, which now is like, okay, that told us absolutely nothing. But at the time I was like, okay, this is telling me about the weather in my area. And I presented it at a local college, Lehigh University, which is actually where I ended up going to get my undergrad degree. And I presented it there, and I remember just seeing all the science going on at the school. They toured us around the college when we were there, and I thought, wow, this is really cool and interesting. And got me more interested in science, and as you go through high school and everything, I had all these different classes, and I thought, wow, this is great. I liked biology, I liked chemistry, I liked physics, I liked environmental science, just a science sort of person. So I decided when I went to college that I wanted to study something related to the environment and environmental science. And I ended up going to Lehigh University because it was a great school, it was near my house, and I got a really competitive scholarship package from there because I did well in the sciences in high school. And so I ended up going there and I took a lot of AP classes so I could enroll in pretty much whatever I wanted. I was in the honors program so I didn't have to do the sort of like basic classes that everyone has to, and so I sort of launched right into sophomore level classes right away my freshman year, and I ended up taking a class in the environmental science department that was on GIS, so Geographic Information Systems. And that class was taught by, who ended up being my undergrad
1: advisor. Can you tell us a little bit about Geographic Information Systems?
0: Yeah, so geographic information systems, they're software that are designed to take geographic data. So it can be things like the terrain of the Earth's surface. It can be something like the density of forest cover. It can be something like population metrics. Anything that has a geographic aspect to it, meaning it's varying in space. And you can feed them into these different software programs, and you can look at that data in different ways and pull out statistics and and other sort of metrics from the data sets that then can be used to analyze, let's say, um, you could analyze changes in stream flow and that effect on water resources in a population. So I took this class because I was like, wow, this is really interesting. We're looking at geographic data and we're pulling out observations from it that we can use to assess what's going on in the environment. In this class, I, I really liked it. I liked the uh, the sort of the visual. I'm a very visual learner, so I really liked looking at the, the maps and figuring out ways to analyze them. And I did really well in the class. And my undergrad advisor, who was the only woman in the department at the time, um, I think it was a department of about 12 people, she was the only woman. She was young, she had just started a year or so before. She really wanted to have undergrads that were women go into the field with her for this project that she had going on. And since I did well in her class, she approached me and said, oh, I would love for you to go do this field work. And she had approached someone else about it as well. And the field work was to go to Peru and go way up high in the Andes and map the features that are left behind from glaciers as they retreat.
1: That's not too shabby. No. (laughs) first field experience. Yeah. So this was
0: my first time like really leaving the U.S. I had gone to Canada once when I was a I don't know, in like seventh grade to Toronto, which is like barely even crossing the border. So this was my first real time leaving the US and I had to get a passport. I had never been to big mountains before, anything like that. So it was this absolutely awesome experience. And we went around in Peru for about a month, hiking around these really, these glaciers that are really high up in the Andes and mapping these features that were left behind a couple thousand years ago. And what sort of features? So these were moraines, which are essentially mounds of debris, mostly rock, that's built up because glaciers sort of act as conveyor belts. And so these glaciers were bigger when the climate was colder. And so they extended farther than they do today. And since they were farther down the mountainside, they had ground up this rock beneath them and pushed it down as they moved down the mountains and then deposited at these, the end extents. So basically the farthest they were, they put it out at their ends and they left it there. And now they've retreated from these areas and they've left behind this debris. So we were looking at these moraines, this debris that's left behind and using um, some dating techniques, which look at the age of radioactive decay in the the rocks to figure out how long ago these moraines were deposited. That was something that my advisor was really into, but then she wanted to be able to relate that to modern glaciers and modern glacier change. And she didn't have any grad students yet because she was new to the department. So she said, oh, if you're interested, why don't you then keep working on a project with me to look at the modern glacier change using satellite data?
1: So this was in your second year of university, right? That was at the end of my freshman year is when I
0: went into the field. So then starting my sophomore year, I started doing this research for Mm -hmm. her. And it was to use optical satellite data, which essentially it's like taking pictures of the Earth's surface and looking at these pictures over time. Um, The Landsat satellites were what we used, and they have been orbiting the Earth since... The 70s. So I started looking at the glaciers in the 80s, went all through the 90s and into the 2000s, and looked at changes in the size of these glaciers essentially Mm -hmm. over time. And in an effort to then relate that to changes in the climate going on, so that she could then say, okay, if we see these glaciers are changing at X rate now in response to, I don't know, like a half a degree of, of warming of air temperatures then we can say how much the air temperatures warmed um, from that period back in time when they were much, much farther mm-hmm. when we were dating those moraines. So that was what the, the overall idea of the project was. And I worked on that for her for three years, part-time. And after doing that for a while, I was like, this is what I really want to do. Like I love glaciers. Mm-hmm. Like, they're super interesting. I mean, they're absolutely beautiful, Like amazingly beautiful in the Andes. But I was like, these are really interesting. Like, it's interesting to look at the satellite data and see what's going on over time. There's so much different stuff that's going on. And I realized that I was only, like, looking at this, like, tiny little aspect of it. And I wanted to see the big picture. Mm -hmm. So I asked her, I guess it was the beginning of my senior year. Like, I said, okay, I want to go to grad school. Where do I go? And she pointed me to Ohio State where... My Ph.D. advisor was just starting a program as well. But Ohio State has a very long reputation of having a great glaciology program. Ian Howard, who was my Ph.D. advisor, he was just starting to pick up uh, sort of filling a vacancy that they had at the time for a glaciologist. So from there, I got interested in glaciers that are massive, way different than the ones that are in Peru. These are giant, giant glaciers that come out of the ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica. And I'm really interested in now how these glaciers interact with the ocean. So it sort of like has morphed around a little bit, but it was like really got interested in glaciers through doing this field work as an undergraduate.
1: That was just... That was your hook.
0: yeah. Yeah, and it was just that I was a good student. I worked really hard and... My undergrad advisor, she really wanted to encourage women to go into sciences. She saw that she was a minority in the department, and she didn't want that to dissuade women from pursuing science. So she really wanted women to go, and it was a great, like, really impactful experience.
1: Would you say that's something you've then tried to bring with you in terms of encouraging women to go into the sciences now? Yeah, I,
0: I definitely, to me, it is really important to have women go into the sciences and i see that it's it's sort of amazing of the like i look around and when i was in grad school all of my group actually when i was a student all of the other students when i was there were all girls as well so that was super bizarre because then you look at the composition of glaciologists as like faculty members and i'd say women maybe make up 20% of the glaciologists maybe
1: that's something I've noticed totally throughout my academic career too. Is I mean I'm primarily taught by men with the occasional woman dotted in there, and so yeah. this is
0: the it's the concept of the leaky pipeline, which I know some people hate that terminology, but it's you do really see this tapering off of the percentages of women as you go up, and so you're hoping that that's because the more senior women there, they didn't have as many opportunities, so that's why there are so few. That you see that it's growing, and you would hope that means that it, it is going to keep growing. But at the same time, there was this tremendous attrition of women going from PhD to research faculty, postdoc, whatever, assistant professor in a tenure-track position. There was this huge drop-off of there mm-hmm. were probably 50% women in grad school, and now all of a sudden it's down to like 10 to 20
1: how do you think we can improve getting that drop off of women going into the sciences? I know there are, there are a whole number of reasons that yeah. might be happening, but but on a personal level, do our best to make sure that that people don't drop off.
0: So some of it is we're in a, what I would consider to be a very physics and math based discipline in glaciology. Part of what I see this is through my own personal experiences and. Some of them has, have been doing outreach now as a faculty member. I see that there's already sort of, I don't know if it's, it's a disinterest in the physical sciences. I don't, I don't know what is driving it, but like I can see when I have done outreach with my husband, who is a high school science teacher, and I have gone to his physics and physical science classes in high mm-hmm. school, they're already physics for my husband for it was a senior year elective which means that the students actually never even had to take physics in his school only sort of the top seniors would take it as an elective i think one year he only had one girl in his class of 18 students oh my god so there's already this tremendous drop off and i don't know if it's I don't know what fuels that, you know, some people have talked to me about it and they've said, well, maybe women are just more interested in the biological sciences because they say, oh, well, I can be a nurse or I can be a veterinarian, sort of that taps into the nurturing sort of aspect that a lot of women feel. But at the same time, there's also something to be said of the maybe we're steering women away from this, like it's it doesn't seem appealing or it doesn't seem feasible. So you already see that we seem to be losing girls already. And I think part of it starts at a young age of things that we can do to help. I personally, when I was a little kid, I mean, I benefited from the fact that my mom is a nurse practitioner. So my mom is a very educated woman in the sciences. Mm -hmm. And all of her kids, I have two siblings, they have gone into the sciences as well. So clearly my mom had something to do with that. But I remember, like, I did Girl Scouts as a kid. And my troop your troop activities are largely, or at least when I was in Girl Scouts, were driven by your troop leader. Mm -hmm. And my troop leader clearly thought what girls needed to do was learn how to sew and bake. And it was so disappointing to me. Here I was this like really outdoorsy kid and like all we did was sewing and baking. And I remember I went to Girl Scout camp and that's when we did like really fun stuff outside. We learned archery. I loved learning archery. It was (laughs) so cool but then you would go back to your troop, and then we didn't we didn't do anything. Like my brother was in Boy Scouts, and they were going out on hikes and Right, yeah. So it's there's something to be said of like we're already treating girls differently. Some of that is good, some of that is bad, at a young age, and you have to think that maybe that partially steers people. Mm-hmm. And then and why there's this big drop off between grad school and professional level is the other mm-hmm. issue. And to me, part of that is. Like I've personally experienced, of it is really hard if you are a woman that wants to have children, to think that you're spending your twenties, which is when a lot of people are having kids, and I Mm -hmm. knew a lot of people that had kids. You're spending your twenties working towards your education, and like I remember thinking, well, this would not be a good time for me to have a kid. Like this would be really difficult in grad school. You don't make much money, very stressed. So you're you're sort of putting it off, and then at the end of grad school. If you're going to try to pursue a tenure track job, you have to basically do a postdoc. And then there's no you... guarantee that there's any job stability, and to me that that is very terrifying to think about having children and not having any sort of job stability. So I don't I don't know if that factors into other women's decisions, but to me maybe women feel that pressure a little bit more than men of the you don't want to have, like, no money. <laughs> I mean, if you're, if you're thinking of starting a family, and you can argue, well, men are thinking of starting families then too. But I don't know. Maybe that impacts women differently, that they see that there's more uncertainty and they respond differently to that. So I don't know what, yeah. I don't know what the solution is with that, that. Can it possibly explain why we lose so many people that just say, I just don't want to go into academia. A lot of women go into different scientific fields. But why so many women then say, I don't want to go into academia
1: yeah, definitely interesting. Maybe something for which we need to advocate is making the university structures more supportive of people who want to have children or achieving a work-life balance where you're still also trying to really succeed. Because most people are motivated when yeah. going into academia anyway. I don't know how we would do that on the ground level, but that seems like a really important thing to do. Because the university structures are not necessarily... Supporting us and advocating for us yeah. along that entire journey. Yeah. So I think
0: yeah. I think the hard part is that there's like a there's a couple years of a slog. It can be a couple years. It can be really short. It can be very long. Between when you finish grad school and when you could get a tenure track job that has more job stability. So like I've been research faculty for five years. I was a postdoc first, and then I transitioned into research faculty.
1: Okay. Let's just quickly go over the rest of your academic journey. Just, I guess, where you went from starting with Ian Howard at Ohio State University mm-hmm. and then to present day, and then we'll get a little bit more into your research okay. as well.
0: So once I left Lehigh, I started at Ohio State, and this was another fortuitous thing. And I, I've been talking to one of my grad students a lot about this lately of the, you have to work really hard to prepare yourself to then take advantage of opportunities. So I did all of this work as an undergraduate, which made me very competitive for graduate school, and Ohio State really wanted me there. I wasn't 100% sure who I wanted to work with because there are a lot of people that study different aspects of glaciers, but I thought I would work with Ian, who did end up being my PhD advisor. But when I first got to Ohio State, it was like, okay, I'm going to start in the summer, start working for him before classes start. But then it happened to come up that Lonnie Thompson, who is a very, very esteemed ice core scientist he had a student who i think he tore his acl and needed surgery on it that was supposed to go into the field with him in peru and since i had already gone to peru before they were like all right just have ellen go along so i got to go to peru again which was awesome Uh, and i really loved it it was it was super fantastic and i did that and then when i came back from that it was another like month-long trip i started working for ian And Ian was another new faculty member, so he was on the tenure track, but he had just gotten there, I think, in January before I came. Mm -hmm. So he was only there for about six months, and he sort of just, like, threw me in the deep end, (laughs) because he was a new faculty member, and so he just thought, okay, well sort of reproduce what I have been doing in one region in Greenland and just do it in a different region. And I knew that he was looking at contemporary glacier change, so modern glacier change. And he was looking at marine terminating glaciers. So these are glaciers that drain the Greenland ice sheet where snow and ice builds up and then it flows towards the edges of the ice sheet. So these glaciers drain this ice that's building up in the middle and they drain it into the ocean. And so I was interested in these glaciers because I had read things as an undergrad that said these glaciers Are changing really quickly. And Ian had done some really impactful work on that. He had like a science publication. So he clearly wasn't a a rising star in glaciology. And he was like, all right, just I've looked at these glaciers in southeast Greenland. Look at them all along the west coast and just like take what I have and just run with it. Which was both good and bad. (laughs) I mean, it was a steep learning curve for both of us, I think. But clearly. He was a great person to start working with because he was really enthusiastic. He had a lot of things going on. He was very encouraging of my degree progress, so... I I worked for him on these glaciers in Western Greenland. He encouraged me to apply for this course in the Italian Alps to look at glaciers. It's like a short course. It's two weeks long the following September. And I did that and Mm -hmm. he was an instructor there too. And so while we we got off the train in Germany, we were super jet lagged and he goes, so you're thinking of doing your PhD. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of doing that. And he's like, what do you think about doing some numerical modeling? And I just remember this because I was so tired. And I was like, sure, that sounds good. (laughs) So I did some numerical modeling as a grad student too, but largely looking at satellite data to understand how these glaciers changed. I got to do field work, two field campaigns in Greenland, and field campaigns in Iceland for oh, these wow. projects he had going and they were all great. They, none of them actually fed directly into my research, which is sort of funny to think I did, I've did. i done all this field work and it's yeah. like never anything related to my own research. But they were really great experiences. I gained a lot of valuable skills in remote sensing data analysis and in situ data, so looking at like the GPS records and the ocean sort of records that we got for this one glacier in Iceland and I got numerical modeling experience. I decided that and I had sort of known this all along when I wanted to pursue my PhD. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to go into academia. I volunteered because I got a NASA fellowship when I was a grad student. So my stipend was totally paid for. That meant that I could research this topic that I proposed for my fellowship, which was looking at glacier change and trying to understand differences in glacier sensitivity to climate change. And so I had this fellowship. I didn't have to teach at all as a grad student, but I volunteered to because I wanted to see, okay, if I'm going into academia, am I going to like teaching? Am I in any way good at teaching? These are things that I thought was really important. Yeah. So I ended up volunteering to TA. I TA'd for the department chair. A who, TA is a, teaching, a teaching assistant. So it is... Um, Basically, normally you're tasked with teaching the laboratory exercises mm-hmm. for a class, and I got paired up with the department chair who was revitalizing the geomorphology class for the department. And geomorphology is basically it's just studying the features on the Earth's surface, like these moraines that I studied in Peru as an undergrad. They're geomorphic feature, and so he was coming up with a new geomorphology class. And said, well, why don't you just come up with all new lab?
1: That is a task.
0: <laughs> Which was a lot. Yeah. Um, so I came up with all new laboratory exercises, and then I taught them. And I really did like it. Like, I really enjoyed the interaction with the students. I thought I was actually pretty good at it. I mean, there are always some bumps when you develop a new class. But I really liked it. I thought I was, it was pretty good. I had a good rapport with the students. And I said, okay, I, I'm convinced I really do want to go into academia. And so nearing... The beginning of my last year at Ohio State, I went on a cruise in Svalbard to it was basically a workshop to talk about glacier change and look at the glaciers up there and basically just have a conference but on a boat, on a research vessel. And so while I was there, I met Gordon Hamilton and Gordon and I just hit it off. He was he had a really great personality, he was such a funny guy. After a couple of days, I said, Gordon, what would you think if I came and worked for you as a postdoc? And Gordon was like, Sure, that'd be
1: great. That's excellent. So that's that's how I got my postdoc. So there's there's a lot to be said for networking. So that brings us to your current research, Mm -hmm. which involves what?
0: My current research is largely focused on understanding why different glaciers are responding in variable ways to climate change. The climate is changing right now. And basically, almost all the glaciers around the world are getting smaller in response to changes in air temperature, largely the atmosphere is warming, and also changes in ocean conditions. The ocean is also warming. So what we see is that glaciers all over the world are getting smaller as a result of these changes because the ice is melting more. But the really interesting thing is that not all of the glaciers respond the same way. So there's differences in both the timing of when they respond and also the magnitude of the changes. And I'm really interested in figuring out how these glaciers are changing that Are the ones that are in contact with the ocean and these you can consider sort of like a double whammy they're experiencing this increase in atmospheric warming which is driving more melt from their surface which Mm -hmm. is making them get smaller but then also the ocean is changing as well and these glaciers therefore are subject to these two different environmental changes it's really difficult to figure out why some of them are responding a little bit different than others because it's really hard to take observations where these glaciers
1: meet the ocean Right, because they're in really remote areas.
0: They're in really remote areas, and it's inherently dangerous. These glaciers have all these cracks in their surface, which are called crevasses, which make it difficult to navigate on them. You can't really walk around on most of them. And then they really sort of randomly break off icebergs into the ocean and there there are processes that drive this iceberg calving process when they they break off and go into the ocean but the exact timing of when the icebergs break off is is really highly variable like you can think of it as sort of like volcanoes erupting or earthquakes happening like we know what is driving that it's a it's a stress imbalance essentially but Mm -hmm the exact timing of it, it, it has to sort of hit a threshold and then it goes. And it's hard to predict when that will happen. So you don't want to be you know, right below one of these glaciers where the icebergs are breaking off when an iceberg breaks off. It's right. really dangerous. So it's, it's hard to study this interface between the ice and the ocean. That to me is a really interesting problem and it's what I'm particularly interested in, in figuring out. And so that's why I use a lot of satellite observations, a lot of airborne observations and some modeling sometimes and some in situ observations. So putting out GPS units on the glaciers and seeing how their flow changes over time. So it's it's really trying to leverage a lot of different data sets to figure out what's going on at a place where it's difficult to collect observations the reason why this is so important is because these glaciers do show a lot of variability in their sensitivity to climate change that means it's really difficult to pinpoint exactly how much mass will be lost from these glaciers over time and that's important because the mass breaks off from these glaciers or melts off from these glaciers and goes into the ocean people always emphasize that has an impact on sea level. And it does, it has a very clear impact on sea level. If we melted or or broke off ice from Antarctica, if Antarctica totally disappeared, the whole Antarctic ice sheet, it would be something like 70 meters of global sea level rise on average. If we lost all of Greenland, it would be like 7 meters on average. So right. these are clearly really important numbers when you think that the majority of the Earth's population lives within a couple meters of sea level. Mm-hmm. So that's really important, and it's, it's necessary that we understand what controls this timing and magnitude of glacier change so that we can say what the rate of sea level rise will be on average, but it's also really important because if we lose mass from one place, let's say we lose all of western Antarctica, there are lots of feedbacks in the Earth system that control exactly how that mass is distributed. So it's not that sea level will go up 7 meters everywhere on the Earth. Mm-hmm. Some places it might go up to, I don't know, 10 meters. In some places it will be only 4 because that will actually affect how the entire Earth's mass is sort of redistributed.
1: And a feedback mechanism is like where something happens in one place and then can lead to a change in another place which can lead to another yes. change in another place, etc. So yeah. this
0: is really important because that means that we have to figure out both the timing and the spatial variability in this mass loss and it also has impacts on potentially on ocean circulation and ocean ecosystems as well and I think people often overlook that aspect of it but it is really incredibly important. What I'm really interested in lately is that we see that these glaciers in Greenland are changing. They're flowing faster into the ocean, they're breaking off more icebergs into the ocean, and they're contributing to sea level rise. It's about a millimeter per year. So sea level's going up on average across the Earth a millimeter per year because Greenland is getting smaller. That's also really important because there is this sort of ocean conveyor belt The water goes from the surface of the Atlantic Ocean way, way far depths of the Atlantic Ocean right around where Greenland is. That is partially driven by the formation of sea ice and it's also affected by icebergs and melt coming off of Greenland and going into the ocean Mm -hmm. because that affects the temperature and the salinity of the ocean, which affects the density and the water has to be more dense to sink to the bottom of the ocean. And that drives this conveyor belt and this conveyor belt is super important because it redistributes heat from the tropics towards the poles. So if we upset that conveyor belt in some way. We slow it down, which is what could potentially happen if Greenland keeps melting more. We could slow that down, which means that we're concentrating heat of the tropics and we're making the poles colder, which has all kinds of different implications for climate. But it's it's really important. And Actually not really well known what is going on right now and it's because we don't have records of this ocean circulation that go back for a long time period and there's so much variability in the glacier behavior that we have a hard time pinpointing exactly how it is influencing right. ocean circulation so we have all these different things that glaciers influence I think it's really important and the whole purpose of my research is to figure out what controls changes in, in glacier flow and, and their iceberg production and, and things like that over time.
1: Shifting gears a little mm-hmm. bit, specifically what is it like being a working mom? What did you say? Winnie is now 13 months old. 13 months, right. So it's like a relatively new thing, but mm-hmm. you've been doing it for a year now. And you've talked before about how the challenge of balancing being a mother and an academic career, etc., can be challenging. So can you just tell us a bit about your experiences and maybe how that ties into how you've overcome adversity throughout your academic journey?
0: As I sort of was talking about earlier, like to me, it has actually always been important that I am also a mom. There's always something I knew I wanted to have kids. I said, all right, I want to get my graduate degree and I want to be successful in science but I also want to be a good mom. To me, those things are not mutually exclusive. You can be both a good scientist and a good mom. My mom largely shaped this view. My mom raised three children on basically her own for a large part of my life while she was going back to school to pursue her degree to become a nurse practitioner and working full-time and raising three kids. And so to me, there's no reason why you can't be good at both of those. Things I think my mom was like scatterbrained throughout most of her (laughs) life and now I see why. Um, So I always wanted to do that. And when I found out that I was pregnant, I immediately started looking into maternity leave policies at UMaine. And I found out that like the U.S. in general, there is no uniform maternity leave policy really at the university it's sort of up to the department then in doing some more digging after I had my son I found out that as research faculty I technically have no paid maternity leave which
1: this is such a huge flaw yeah
0: was this was a big shock in the
1: system because
0: I had thought that I had worked everything out I had talked to human resources and said all right I'm taking my leave I should have paid leave at the end of it they said well what grant is paying for this I was like, what do you mean what grant is paying for this? This is my maternity leave. I thought the university would pay for it as a benefit. And it turns out, no. It was fine because technically as research faculty, I have an academic year appointment, which means I only get paid to work nine months of the year anyway. So I do have, I do technically have three months off a year. I never take it because I'm just trying to get all my work done. But it means that I, I technically have three months off a year. And so I said, all right, this year I'm just going to have to take Two of those months off as my maternity leave. That's just what I'm going to have to do. And I had tried really hard to prepare ahead of time. I submitted a paper for publication. I think it ended up being like a week before my son was due because he came early. Um, and then I ended up, I didn't quite get to my second paper that I was trying to publish. So I ended up writing that while my son was like napping on me while I was on maternity leave and submitted that in October last year. So about a month after I had him.
1: That's so impressive. (laughs)
0: And I was probably deliriously tired, so it is amazing that it went well, but I had been working on it for a really long time.
1: Meanwhile, Um, you were advising four graduate graduate students students
0: and an undergraduate student. And so I had talked to all of my students about what my expectations were while I was on leave it was really helpful to have a group of multiple graduate students because then they can sort of help mentor each other mm-hmm. which I think is a really helpful thing in graduate school especially because your advisor doesn't know everything they don't know like the ins and outs of the classes and stuff like that so that worked out okay and then I came back off of my leave and just had to pick up with productivity right away the other hard part was finding child care there was a tremendous waiting list at all of the places that I applied um, I applied at three places 11 months I think before I needed daycare and still none of them had openings and so I had to work from home and sometimes bring my son into the office to do work so that I could keep making progress on my research. I finally got him into a daycare in January when I had him in September. It was just it was hard in the beginning to figure out that that balance of basically figuring out how to spend time with him but have him go to daycare but get work done and what I have settled on now and unfortunately, I will say, my my son has always been a good sleeper, so oh, good. once I went back to work, I never felt like I was so terribly sleep deprived that like I couldn't function. Mm-hmm. I know some people have a much harder go than I did, so that was, that was actually really good. But now I have found that how I balance things is that I try to be very productive during the day, and I have a very elaborate calendar system, so I have to have my time very much blocked off to have meetings with people. I have time blocked off where I'm like, this is the amount of time I'm going to spend working on revising a paper or reading through a proposal that I'm writing a review on. So that way things don't just drag on and I can keep making progress mm-hmm. on things. And to me that has helped keep me sane. I don't forget things that way. I know how much time I can spend on things. And that way I can go home and I can still spend time with my son. I don't feel like I never get to see him. Because that is something that's it's hard to think. Like you're gone for like nine hours a day and my son sleeps like 12 hours. So I yeah. see him three hours a day. So I want to make the most of it when I'm there. It was a little bit of a struggle with all of that. And then I was also applying for tenure track positions at the same time and I ended up getting one at Boise State this year, which I'm super excited about and really happy that happened. And I think it speaks very highly on their department that literally the day that I was supposed to leave for the interview, my son had been battling this cold and he kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And it was the first time I was going to leave him and he was so sick. And I just, I was like, I can't, I can't leave him like this. Like there's something wrong with him. I just can't. I can't leave him. And so the day I was supposed to leave for the interview, I called and I said, I, I can't come. My son is very, very sick. I just can't do this. And we rescheduled it. And it's good that I did that because I took my son to the doctor and he had pneumonia at like five months old. Oh, And so he he just needed me. Like, there was no way my husband could have handled doing everything Mm -hmm. without me there with a five-month-old with pneumonia. So they rescheduled me for a month later. Clearly, they're a, a really progressive department in the sense that they did not see that as, a oh, she's not serious about her science. Right. Because she had to reschedule this because she had a kid. And you do worry about that. And I do think that in my personal experiences of applying for faculty positions, I have been sexually discriminated against some ways more obviously than others. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it has been more under the table, but I've picked up on. But to me, that shows that Boise State at least is very progressive. And I think that's super important. And I'm, I'm happy to be joining a place where it seems like people have a good work-life balance and it's, it's okay to have... Kids. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. That they're supportive of the fact that, like, people have lives outside of work
1: as well. So something, probably the last thing we'll touch on, um, and something I'm really interested in personally, is how do you continue pursuing and persisting despite sometimes discrete sexism in your different job application processes?
0: So, like, you really do have to really want it and you have to be a good scientist because you have to be able to come up with funding to keep yourself mm-hmm. going. It would be hard to keep up writing papers which are one of the metrics you're assessed on once you leave academia unless you go to some sort of research lab or you work for NASA or something. But then you still have to also raise salary and everything. So it, no matter what you're you're going to be working hard to keep research going. So it can be very soul crushing. I submitted say well over 50 applications and that was even being sort of selective in places that I was willing to live in five years I went on I think 13 job interviews which is good I mean it's good to get to the interview stage but then would get rejected from everywhere and the really hard part about that is most places don't give you feedback or their feedback is something very vague of you weren't the right fit which is not constructive. It's not helpful, no. In the sense that like, you can't do anything to improve that. So it really wears on you because after a while you start going, wow, well, maybe I have a really horrible personality that people <laughs> just hate me. And that that is hard. So right. to have people reject you just based on like looking at your application materials and maybe they say, oh, well, turns out we wanted someone with a slightly different specialization, or right. we wanted someone a little more senior. Stuff like that is not hard to take. So when you don't get an interview and they just reject you based on paper, you're mm-hmm. like, eh, whatever, that's fine. Yeah. It's when you then meet the people and you think that it went pretty well. You only had one interview that I thought didn't go particularly well. All the other ones I thought went really well. And then they're just like, then they come back and they're like, well, we're not hiring you. And you ask for feedback and you're like, oh, well, I can't either, I can't provide it or it wasn't the right fit or in some places I, I felt like I was... I received some comments that were sexually discriminatory um, that it's really hard. And I I give my husband a lot of credit because every year I'd have this application season and I'd go in these interviews and I would try just not to think about it, but then I would get the rejections and it's soul crushing is the only way I can describe it. Of the, oh, well, I guess I have another year now where no one likes me and I don't know how much longer I can keep doing it.
1: Right. Like yeah. I had
0: I had given myself a limit of after this year I was going to leave the academic pursuit. It had been five years of a very hard process. And my husband really was the person that was like, you know, keep going. Like he said, we're going to limit it because you can't keep doing this to yourself. He's like, you're a great scientist. There's no reason why you should feel so awful about yourself. So he's like, we're, we're going to limit it because I just can't see... This, like, wearing you down over mm-hmm. time. But he was very, very supportive. And I can't imagine doing it without someone there that is supportive. It doesn't have to be your partner. You know, it could be your parent or your best friend or mm-hmm. someone like that. But you need to have some sort of support to help you with that. I mean, your mental health is incredibly important. Right. And that's really what helped keep me going. And just the thought that, like, I know I'm a good scientist. Yeah. And I know that, and I've had a good record of getting my science funded. It was just a matter of finding a place where that was recognized and that I fit whatever they wanted. So it's hard, and some people it never works out. I mean, there are only so many academic job openings. Some of it is a little bit of luck, and some of it's perseverance, whether that's like to a level that you're crazy and you should have (laughs) given up or not. But yeah, I'd say having some sort of... support support there to like help pick you up when you get rejected and you get rejected a lot in academia you get proposals rejected you get papers rejected you get lots of things that people tell you well this wasn't good enough and to have someone who is helpful and is like you are good at what you do like you're a great scientist that to me is like is a is an incredibly important thing that you can't
1: undervalue really It was so awesome to be able to share Ellen's journey through science studying contemporary glaciers thus far, along with her experiences in navigating an academic career as a mother. You can follow Ellen on Twitter at Glacier underscore Doc, where she regularly tweets about academic life. Thanks again for listening. Check out our website at letsdosomethingbig.weebly.com or connect with us on Instagram at LDSBIG. Content was produced and edited by Mahalia Dryak and Mariama Dryak. The cover art for the We Persist podcast is created by Emma Henry, and the music for today's episode is from Purple Planet Music.